Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's official. With the rising cases across Canada, doctors say we have entered the dreaded fourth wave of the pandemic. But they add how bad it gets is going to really depend on how much we get vaccinated. We'll give you the details on that. With September just around the corner, the government revealing their back-to-school plan, preparing for another unpredictable school year is on the minds of many parents. The biggest concern? Child mental health post-COVID-19. Registered psychotherapist Colleen Blake-Miller is going to join us on the program to talk about that. And if China hadn't targeted white Canadians, would Chinese-Canadian relations be business as usual? There's a thought-provoking column in the Toronto Star about that, and we'll get into that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, talk about, well, what we were hoping we'd never have to talk about, and that's a fourth wave of the pandemic. The head of Ontario's science advisory table says we will not support any further easing of public health measures. Dr. Peter Uni says, given the recent COVID-19 case numbers, a fourth wave concerns all of us, and we should all be very careful. Right now, we are having an average of roughly 370 cases per day in Ontario. Um, And the challenge we're in right now is that the doubling time is relatively short, eight to 10 days right now estimated, meaning the daily case counts will double every eight to 10 days. So in 10 days from now, we could easily be at 700 cases per day. And at the beginning of the school year, we could easily be above 1000 already. Now, the point is that for those of us who are fully vaccinated, and it's especially true for people my age, I'm 53, uh, the full vaccination starts to make this relatively trivial. Uh, meaning uh, it's uh, like any other respiratory tract infection, even if we get it. But for those who are not vaccinated, the risk through Delta is high to uh, eventually end up in the hospital or in an ICU if you're especially above the age of 50. Notice how vaccination, vaccination, vaccination seems to be a common theme through this whole thing. Uh, We're into the fourth wave. We didn't want to see this happen. We're trying to get out of this pandemic. We're trying to break down and get stores open again and and attractions open again and tourism open again. Uh, But with these numbers going up, it's it's a great concern. So where are we and what needs to be done here? Pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health at Ryerson University. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. It's my pleasure, Bill. Uh, let's let's talk about vaccinations and the impact. Uh, one of uh, Dr. Uni's colleagues on the uh, the health table, uh, Dr. Isaac Bogash, was quoted yesterday as saying, "This is a fourth wave, and it is going to be overwhelmingly a disease of the unvaccinated and undervaccinated Canadians." Is that an accurate description? You think? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. That virus is out there hunting for the unvaccinated. Uh, no matter which which country you look at, where the statistics are coming from. Uh, when you look at the number of people who are being diagnosed and admitted and treated and hospitalized and so on, uh, somewhere around 1% are, are people who are fully vaccinated. All the rest are either the unvaccinated or the people who just have one shot. Well, the, the statistic that jumped out of me, Doctor, which I just was found to be unfathomable was uh, since we started the vaccination program and that was just before Christmas here in, in Canada and it was slow we get that but the reality here is that they were available and they were being distributed but 90 percent of the COVID cases since the beginning of the year are from unvaccinated people I mean that, that, that defies logic I mean you know we were screaming for a year boy if we only had a vaccine well we've got one now and almost 40 percent of the population or 35 percent of the population I guess uh, haven't done it yet 
Oh, absolutely. You're hitting the thing right on the head here. I mean, the big question is, why on earth? I mean, what, what are people waiting for? Now, remember, the big mistake here is to lump all the unvaccinated people into one mob, and they're certainly not. There are people there who are the, 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 the rabid anti-vax people. Well, we know we'll never get through to them. But the majority of people are, for different reasons, hesitating. And then we've got to the other end of the people, other end of the scale, people who, who cannot be for, for whatever reason. They, they have uh, underlying conditions. They have uh, transplant uh, uh, conditions just going on and so on. And so we need to protect. We need to close ranks around them. That's the whole principle of the, of the herd immunity is that those people who cannot be, the vulnerable, Vulnerable, the, the, the vaccinated people make a circle around them, and we protect them. But what? But we've got to reach a certain proportion. If the numbers are very thin, then we're not going to be able to do that. And so this is where we are right now. We've done such an incredible job in this country. I remember speaking to you about uh, a year ago, having some doubt that we would ever be anywhere mm-hmm. near where we are now, uh, and yet we've got there. We're one of the best vaccinated countries in the world. What a shame to throw all that lead advantage away by by now throwing a, a precaution to the wind and taking off the mask and mixing just like it was back two years ago. And we can see numbers being created. I'm looking at the figures right now. They're nowhere near as high as they were in the U.K. about a month ago. Mm-hmm. But they are increasing, and they're increasing at a greater rate than they were about a year ago when we were entering the uh, the second wave. Well, yeah, the numbers that I saw yesterday indicate that there was a 60% increase from one week to the next. Uh, and and the, the numbers are not, as you say, significant, but the fact that they're charting upwards in that trend is, is troubling in and of itself. And and this is something that we need to worry about. We got the Hamilton numbers. I don't know if you had a chance to see those, Dr. Sly, but they presented those to the Board of Health yesterday at, at a city council meeting. Uh, around July or so, uh, there was an average of about 9,000 people a day getting vaccinated in Hamilton, and now it's less than 1,000 on every day. They're closing down clinics because there's nobody coming in. Uh, and and there's, it's not lack of supply. There's a lot of vaccines out there. It's just people are not coming in. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We're awash in vaccines at the moment uh, in a position that many other countries would would love to have. I mean, that's that's another real, really big issue. If you stand back from the local situation and, and re- realize that we are in this situation now because of new variants. If this was the original virus, we would all be right back now on the beach and the bar, the bistro, we would have forgotten pandemics. Uh, then the, uh, the Alpha came along and extended it. And then the Delta came along, and there will be others. Now, so far, remember, we're pretty lucky. We've only had the increased transmission in these series of variants. The next one might not be just an increase in transmission. It may be an increase in pathology, or it may be able to escape the vaccines altogether. That's quite on the cards. And as long as we have areas in the world where the, vac- the virus is replicating furiously, and there are, uh, those are where the new variants come from, just out of probability alone. You've told us this in the past, but I think it bears repeating for those who may still be on the fence about this. Uh, and, and you just touched on it a second ago there. Vaccines are, are so important because these viruses mutate. Uh, I mean, just like some of these science fiction horror movies you watch, you know, where the beast all of a sudden becomes something else. That's what th- this virus is doing. I mean, they're active and they see what we're doing, and they counteract that by, by the mutations that they're doing right now. So this, this is an ongoing battle. I mean, I, I'm, what I'm concerned about, uh, I think too many people have thought it was over. Oh, yeah, that's because I mean, we all wish it was over. My sure. goodness, wouldn't it be nice if you and I have a conversation about uh, golf or, or yachting or something? 
But yeah, you're exactly right. And uh, the virus, you're giving the virus too much uh, uh, intelligence, but you, but, <laughs> uh, but you, it, that's exactly what it does. All viruses mutate. They, they always do. I mean, it's the same as writing out a large text in a word processor. You and I make an occasional spelling mistake. And most of those doesn't interfere with the meaning of the thing at all. Anybody could read it and see what you meant. But the more mistakes you get in there, suddenly the meaning begins to change. And that's what happens when we get a, uh, something that does exist with a different intention, that we get a different uh, uh, level of pathology or, or, it, or it transmits more favorably or something like that. All viruses mutate, so we've got to be one step ahead, not to slip back in, the, in a false sense of security. You talked about the people that have not been vaccinated yet, and, and your point's well taken. We can't lump them all together and say they're just a bunch of anti-vaxxers. What's wrong with you people? There are some of medical reasons to do that. There are some uh, who are hesitant because they've heard some of the stories about side effects or the efficacy of the vaccine. And, and you know, the fact that I think they've been pretty clear when those stories have come out about how small or minuscule the percentage of the population is that could be impacted by that. But they're still there. And I think the proof of that, Doctor, uh, is, uh, well, France a couple of weeks ago when uh, President Macron uh, said that, there were, you know, you're going to have to have proof of vaccination or you're not going to get into a restaurant, you're not going to get into a plane, you're not going to a sporting event. Uh, the next day, they almost doubled the number of people that wanted vaccines. And the same thing happened in Quebec last week when uh, Premier Legault did that. Uh, so I, I, you're absolutely right. There are some anti-vaxxers who are just no way they're going to do this, and there's no sense in even trying to ask them anymore. But there are uh, probably a significant amount of people in that group that would go uh, if all they said, oh, my God, I don't want that to happen, so I guess I better get in there. Yeah, it's a multifaceted approach, uh, Bill, exactly as you say. I've I've had conversations with people who are saying, well, I'm just not sure about it. I just don't feel confident. And what about these things I hear? And you, we sit down and we answer the questions one by one in an open, transparent way. And usually the person says, oh, well, okay, I feel much better about that. And then they go and make an appointment. Next thing you know, they're vaccinated. So people are just sort of, they've heard so much of the loud uh, empty cans banging, you know, from the anti-vax people that they, they've really, they haven't thought about it much and they're a bit uh, concerned. So we need to sit down and just be transparent with them, not trying to do a snow job on them and just to answer the questions in a, in a normal way. And, and most people can be brought around like that and I hope they will be. You remember I used to show in a classroom, I'd be, uh, you remember the old uh, overhead transparency? Oh yeah, yeah. One of those on, I had a, uh, a thing with 10,000 little tiny squares and everybody would look at that and say, "This is one in ten thousand. I put a little red, red one of the one of one of the little squares was red. Everybody was looking at that one, and they begin to say, "Is that me? I mean, that's me. That's my uncle George. You know, we'd, we'd focus on the one instead of the other, the remains of the ten thousand that didn't have any effect on there. And we all tend to do that. It's a human trait. So we need to put things in perspective a little bit." Well, and as you've talked to us before, I mean, you know, medical science is brilliant, but it's not 100% accurate and perfect all the time. I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've had two knee replacements, and before the knee surgeries, I have to sign this document that said, you know, something could go wrong. These are the risks that you're taking. There's risk involved in anything, whether you're going under an anesthetic, whether you're taking a vaccine. But what, what the brilliant people in our profession do, in your profession especially, is they minimize those risks. And, and you, I, you know, this, this is the message I think that's lost on a lot of people. Yeah, I, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm an epidemiologist. But yeah. you, you, the point is very, very correct. Uh, remember, nothing is 100%, Bill. Nothing. 
And if, if people talk about it, uh, we go to a town hall meeting and somebody stands up and says, is this 100% safe? Well, the answer is nothing in the world is 100% safe. In, in the same way that you can say that nothing is, is 100% protecting of cancer or nothing 100% will give you cancer, uh, whatever it is you're arguing about. So, so when it comes to a pandemic, whether we're talking about testing or vaccination or screening methods or any other methods of diagnosis or anything else, they're all less than 100%. So the idea is to layer these over. It's sometimes been called the Swiss cheese approach, you know, where you have the holes, mm-hmm. li- and the, the holes don't line up. After a while, you've got a solid block of cheese there, only because all the little, little holes don't, you know, line up with each other. So this, this layering approach is the best way to go. And this was pointed out by Justice Archie Campbell at the end of the 2003 SARS-1 episode, saying, you know, we've got to use all these methods. Don't look out for 100% because there really is never in science 100%. Nobody ever says proof in science. That's what the mathematicians say and the lawyers. <laughs> One of the f- things that I think should frighten us is, is how wide-ranging this, uh, this Delta variant is. Uh, you know, about a year or so ago, doctor, we were saying, well, you know what, kids are at risk, but not really because they don't seem to, to, to be in line with this COVID-19 virus. And so, you know, we have to take precautions, but they're going to be okay. Uh, the overwhelming majority of these new cases uh, are, are people in the younger demographic, under 35, 40 years of age, and even kids in school, uh, which is concerning since school is going to start here in Ontario again in just a few weeks, uh, which is another reason why we have to get our defenses up. Absolutely. Yep, yep. Now, the kids fall into that category we were talking about a moment ago. That they yeah. really are not eligibly vaccinated. So what do we do? We have to close ranks around them and protect them. So how do we do that? Well, we make sure that we bring into the classroom as much as humanly possible. So we bring in cohorting. So the kids are in a group together, and they don't mix randomly with other groups. Ventilation in schools, if we've talked about that a lot, and filtration of air, if that's possible. Keep up the masking. Don't let that down to the bone. That really does work distancing if possible, testing as much as we can do, and certainly the people who are interfacing who can be vaccinated should be vaccinated. So the, the, the adult staff in there, anything more than 20 or 12 years old, they should be fully vaccinated. I mean, there should be no question about that. Same way as people working long-term care or, or driving a taxi or doing your hair or whatever it is should be vaccinated. So that those kinds of things. And remember, the family around those kids should all be vaccinated as well. So this is all part of the big story, part of the layering effect. I guess to finish off our conversation here with the glasses half full <laughs> analogy, uh, the experts uh, that have talked to us about this and said, yes, it looks like we're into the fourth wave right now. Uh, they do say that if vaccination rates do increase, uh, that a lot of these things that they're talking about may or may not happen. I mean, it's going to mitigate the impact. I mean, you know, I saw Dr. Warner on the news last night saying, you know what, we may have to start canceling elective surgeries again. We don't want to go down there. I've got a good friend of mine that's had a surgery postponed three times now. Uh, and, you know, it's not life-threatening, but he says, you know what, I'm, I'm in a lot of discomfort. I wish the hell I'd had this done in May when they asked me to do it. But because of this pandemic ongoing and because it's going on like this, he and, and thousands and thousands of other people in this province are, are probably suffering unduly because they can't get the procedures they want. Uh, they're talking about Doug Ford's talking about possibly going with more restrictions on businesses if the numbers go up again. We don't want to go down that road. And the easy answer, as you and I talked about at the beginning of this conversation, is then get vaccinated and, and, and you know, get your defenses up. 
We've got to bring this to a close, Bill. This is going on for far too long, we, and we, we, it's within the range. If any country in the world can be the first one to reach the, the, the poster saying, we've got herd immunity now, we've reached it, either with vaccination or any the other guy, it's Canada. So let's let's take that. Let's big. You know, we've got the Olympics as a as a model to go on. Let's take that deep breath and feel the burn and go toward that winning post. In other words, let's get the uh, the vast majority. We'd need about eighty five to ninety percent of people vaccinated in this country, and then we can virtually relax to some degree, and that will be a nice position to be in. Yeah, we're about 72 or 73% right now, so we've got some work to do. Yep. Doctor, it's always reassuring to have a conversation with you about this stuff. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Stay well. Keep asking their good questions, Bill. Take care. I sure them. will. Thanks again. Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist at the Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just a few weeks away from the beginning of the school year, and I know we've had some discussions about the the plan, the back-to-school plan that was announced by the education minister a little while ago. Uh, and a lot of pressure on parents right now. They're having to decide uh, just what's going to happen in this new school year. The kids going to continue with online learning. Uh, they're going to head back to the physical classrooms. And it's, it's a stressful situation. Uh, and, well, as some of the political leaders are saying, it maybe didn't have to be that way. The Green Party leader, Mike Schreiner, uh, has some concerns. Here's what he had to say. It's a tough decision for parents who are trying to do the right thing for their kids who would benefit from in-person learning and social interaction. But at the same time, there are fears about COVID-19 transmission, especially among younger kids who are not eligible yet for vaccines. Green Party leader Mike Schreiner says Premier Doug Ford's negligence and refusal to listen to public health experts when it comes to making schools safer is unacceptable. In a statement, he says vaccines should be mandatory for education workers and class sizes reduced, two things the Ford government has refused to do. And he says with just weeks to go before the start of a new school year, school boards themselves have been left with the responsibility of making improvements to ventilation systems. Schreiner says parents are scared and are left with the impossible choice about their kids learning while they desperately wait for four to make the investments needed to make schools safe. Tina Trajani, Global News. So what is uh, the plan? Uh, how do you approach these concerns and how do you talk to your kids about it? Uh, joining us to talk about this, we're so uh, pleased and so uh, fortunate to have her uh, available to talk about this. Uh, Colleen Blake Miller is a registered uh, psychotherapist, and uh, well, majoring in, in dealing with family issues with children and, and parents when it comes to back to school issues. Uh, Colleen, very timely today. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me on, Bill. I'm, I'm past that. I mean, our kids are way past, you know, educations. But I mean, I remember those days, uh, you know, the grade schools, the elementary schools, the the, the pressure, quite frankly. I had a discussion, yeah. just as a quick aside here, uh, with uh, somebody that was last year going into the school year that, that, who was just very dismissive of this whole thing and said, come on, kids don't feel pressure. Kids don't have mental mm-hmm. health issues. What's going on here? I, I'd like to think we know better now, don't we, Colleen? I, I would think so. I would think so. Um, anxiety. Um, it's extreme worry. It's on the rise as people are talking about it everywhere. It's up in pretty much all the conversations these days. And as parents, it's important to pay attention to that because it's going to also impact our children's, our, our kids' ability to perform in school. And to that point, I mean, there may be some that, you know, that parents will say, well, come on, they don't really show it. Then, you know, you don't really see the stress. Uh, that's even more dangerous, isn't it? Because that means they're internalizing it. It's there and maybe they don't know how to talk about it. And that's, I guess, one of the jobs of a parent to, to sit down and have that conversation and, and, and maybe make them feel more comfortable both talking about their feelings and emotions. Definitely. And, and maybe uh, it's, it's that parents haven't really, um, recognized some of the behavior, like, you know, maybe the crying, the clinginess, the temper tantrums, things that 
maybe they think are just, you know, misbehavior, it's actually a sign of their kids experiencing anxiety. So just, you know, I love the fact that we are talking more about mental health these days and bringing it into the, the forefront so that parents, teachers, uh, we can all pay attention to our kids and their health overall. And the signs, I mean, most parents, I'm sure, are, are, are in tune with this and they can understand when something's not right or something's different with their child. But this time of year, it can be a very stressful situation, Absolutely. given the fact, especially because uh, there is no norm anymore. I mean, you know, and, and you know, a lot of people had to do, you know, virtual learning last year. A lot of them weren't comfortable with it. Some did very well with it. We understand that. But they may have some trepidation about going back into the classroom uh, because they've heard about the virus. Uh, maybe somebody in their family has experienced it and uh, those are not pleasant stories so you know how, should 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 the parents actually sit down with the child and said here's what we're thinking about what how do you feel about this in other words engage them bring them into the conversation absolutely I, I would encourage all parents to be talking openly and honestly with their kids if it's on your mind as a parent it's on your kids mind it's everywhere you can hardly uh, get away from it they have to wear masks when they leave the house so they're fully aware and they've got some thoughts about it and our, and our thoughts affect how we feel. And you want to, as a parent, ensure that your kids are not making wrong conclusions about their health, their fate, their future, uh, you know, your fate, you know, the, the, the future of their loved ones. So you, you have to have open and honest conversation with them and, and talk, I would say, lead by example, be the model. Uh, tell them how you might be feeling. Maybe you're excited about them going to going back to school, but also a little bit nervous. Uh, maybe you have confidence in what the school is doing, but then there's some confusion about some other things. So I, I think definitely talking openly is, is a necessity. And don't make the mistake of thinking that they're not in tune. I mean, they know what's going on. I mean, as you say, a lot of them, they're wearing masks. You see them in the grocery stores and everything else. And they may not know all of the intricacies, you know, about variants and things of this nature. But they know mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm wearing the mask because I don't want to get sick because some people are getting sick these days. And that, mm -hmm. that's, that's, a, that's a good starting point for the conversation. So they're, they're there. They're in tune with this. And you have to have, as you say, an honest conversation. Don't talk down to them because I'm sure that they're aware. Maybe even have some questions about it. Oh, they, I would, I would... I would be surprised if they didn't have any questions about it. It might not be in that initial conversation. So don't think it's like a one and done. We're going to talk about this once and then we move on. We have been talking about COVID for over a year. <laughs> so you can imagine it's an ongoing conversation that, that needs to be on, on, you know, the table with you and your, and your kids, all ages from little all the way up to the ones going to university, I would say. Talk to us about the implications uh, from a social standpoint for kids, uh, Colleen, with what they've gone through, and we're not quite sure what they're going to be doing. I mean, you know, the, the classrooms are going to be open. I'm, I'm sure some parents are going to opt not to do that for a variety of reasons. But mm -hmm. you, social integration is such a key part of growing up. It's part of the education, really. It's, mm -hmm. it's just not what they're learning in school. It's, it's, it's interacting with other kids. It's, it's you know, learning teamwork, learning uh, about other people's feelings and emotions, things of that nature. Uh, they haven't been able to do a whole lot of that over the last 12 or 13 months because they haven't had that that school environment is is, yeah. is that going to have an impact on those kids well i think it it it, it will for sure um if if we see what our kids have been navigating and what they have been having to do not maybe getting outside as much many of them are on screens these days and so the way that they're interacting with other people um it, it has shifted it's different I've heard many 
people talking about not feeling like they know how to talk and interact with others anymore. And so um, I know for myself personally with my children, I have found that they're less hesitant. They're a little bit more hesitant going out, even when I send them to the park and interacting with neighbors or, or, or kids and stuff like that. So we have to consider that keeping them away from social settings is going to over time impact them. It's not like they've been home for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. It's, it's well over a year and well, well, more than that. Right. So it, it's going to affect their readiness, their willingness, the, the, the way that I guess it might feel natural or uncomfortable for them to engage with others outside of their household. So we want to be thinking about that and figure out ways that we can safely get them socializing again. When you've got a child like that, and I'll use your example, you know, they might be a little nervous about even going to the park uh, mm-hmm. because, because you know, well, people are getting sick and we don't want to get sick. Uh, and you say, okay, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks of going back to school, I don't want to go back to school. I don't want to, I, I don't want to get sick. How do, how do you approach something like that as a parent? Yeah. So I would encourage parents that we never want to make kids feel bad about feeling bad. <laughs> we want to... Um, you know, just receive what it is that they're saying and understand it as much as you can. Help them to, you know, um, express themselves. Okay, so when you say you don't want to go back to school, what does that mean? Um, you know, are you are you afraid about learning? Are you concerned about, like, what you're going to be learning? Are you feeling like you're behind? Are you concerned about being sick? Are you concerned about your teacher? Help the child to sort of peel back some of the layers and understand more about what they're feeling. And as you uh, present them with an environment, as you make that environment a welcoming one, then they will naturally feel more open. It's something that um, maybe you need some help and assistance to do. So it could be that you reach out for support uh, with a professional, with a, with a therapist that can, can help to um, facilitate these discussions uh, with your with your kids. But I would I would definitely encourage parents to never uh, shut them down whenever they're bringing these things up. I, I I get it. We all have a lot on our plate, but but don't forget our young ones. They also have a lot of stress that they are going um, that they're navigating through right now too. And, and I guess part of that discussion would have to be, you know, what protocols are in place. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and try to advocate the government's policy, but they have. There are some measures there, you know. And you mentioned masking, uh, the social distancing, the things that they're probably used to having done uh, in their own home environment for the last little while. Uh, mm-hmm. Part of that conversation is say, well, they're going to do that in the school too. They're going to try to make you as safe as possible there too, to try to assuage some of those concerns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think getting all the information that you can. Um, you know, getting on the school's website, uh, getting an understanding of what measures are in place and reiterating that to your children in an age-appropriate way. Um, you know, if you have a teenager going to high school, that conversation is going to be a lot different than if you have a child going into, you know, let's say JK or grade one. So age-appropriately, you talk to them about what you know and, and, and continue to let them know this is an ongoing conversation that we will have and, and always encourage them to bring their worries to you, whether it's big in their mind or small. You want them to feel safe. You know, you want them to feel like home is, is a safe place that they can bring their worries and, and, and they know that they, it will be received. 
from the uh, the parent standpoint, though, you talk about, as you say, getting prepared for this and trying to get as much information as you can. We always talk when we're dealing with uh, with mental health issues of, about support for groups and support individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know one of the greatest ones, uh, have as a parent myself, is is talk to other parents uh, mm-hmm. and and find out what's going on and share information yes. like that. And because uh, I, I, first of all, it kind of removes that whole aura of isolation, doesn't it? Like, oh, oh, you're you're going through the same thing with your child that I'm doing with my, uh, that that kind of conversation pretty important isn't it yeah talking amongst you know finding your people (laughs) finding uh, those that are in the struggle with you is helpful and it will I mean one it's an outlet for you to kind of get things off of your chest and then two you will find resources there are people who have areas of expertise or just more experience you know okay you know I've been there and this is how we've done it or, or this is this is the information that I found um, for myself, a big part of, of how I managed my mental health was kind of uh, tuning out some of the, the the noise, whether it be through some of the outlets that I was letting in. But there were people in my circle that I knew would let me know of things that were, were pressing, like breaking information, breaking news, that kind of thing. So knowing that you are surrounding yourself in a network where you, you you're going to all be informed collectively so that way you don't have the pressure to be in the know about everything i mean it's impossible to stay on top of everything too right oh exactly exactly and and i i know one of the other elements that you've been talking about here too is uh given our past history the last 14 or 15 months with this pandemic uh no matter which course of action you decide whether you want to continue with online learning with your child or you want to try the school environment again uh that could change very quickly and we have to tell our kids that that could change and and be ready for that change 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 is very difficult this has been a tough tough year for students Uh, whether you're you're right whether you're in grade one or grade 12 it's it's you know the transition and change like that it really kind of throws everybody off and we have to be ready and say you know it could happen again i hope it doesn't but let's talk Mm -hmm. about it if it does yeah, yeah. Remaining uh, flexible is going to be key. <laughs> when we're rigid and, you know, uh, change comes, it's like it'll break us. Where if you are, are just allowing yourself to be open and, and aware that nothing is, you know, guaranteed, we have learned that if we've learned nothing else over the past year and a half. And just allow yourself to be flexible and to roll with, you know, kind of where we are going and understand it is, it has been challenging, but we have, we've, we we're doing it. We have gone through, we survived last school year. We will survive this year. We're going to take the lessons that we learned from last year. We're going to apply them this year and we will be well. Our children will be well, uh, but we, we do need to be flexible as best as we can. As parents, we love our kids and we look after them and, you know, oversee and make sure that everything's cool with them on a daily basis. But should we maybe be paying just a little extra special attention as they go through this transition and and have those conversations and look for things, as you say, like behavioral changes or even sometimes physical changes? I mean, you know, stress can can make you physically sick sometimes, too. You know, the the student with the headache or the upset stomach. I mean, you know, is is it really something they ate last night or is it simply some some troubles that they're, they're having trouble coming to grips with? That's right. And um, again, I don't want to add any more pressure because uh, as parents, there's already so much that, uh, you know, you're, you're carrying. Uh, but hopefully these kinds of conversations will just uh, open up your awareness so that you are just able to notice and consider things in a different light. 
but yes, pay attention to yourself. Uh, engage in the conversations um, as best as you can. Obviously, protecting your peace and protecting your your mental health always. And and considering, all right, given all of what's happening, don't just think about how the kids are doing physically. Um, you know, if they've got all the things that they need, uh, like those tangible, whether it's school items and those kinds of things, but also how is their mind? How is their mind? Um, and how is their heart? I would encourage that for sure. Even in ordinary times, and if you think back far enough, you can actually remember those ordinary times with schools. I mean, August is a pretty stressful time for kids anyway, mm-hmm. uh, because they, they've had the summer off and they've been running and playing and haven't whole, mm-hmm. thought a whole lot about school and, or the you know the, the learning process, etc. Uh, so there's, there's there's that reintegration that's happening anyway, and then you, of course it's exacerbated by the the circumstance with COVID and the th- sorts of things that are going on. So you're right; you don't want to put any more stress on families, on kids, or on parents for that matter. But uh, it's uh, it's as good a time as any to maintain a sense of communication with everybody in the family. Absolutely. It's always good to be clear uh, and, and, and to just try to keep everything above board as best as you can so that there's clarity. Uh, and I think that's like, I don't know, the, the best way, the, the best kind of policy around, around your, your wellness is just try to keep things as clear as, as you can. Um, be honest with yourself. Be honest with each other. And and then, you know, just hope and believe for the very best. And have a conversation. Being preventative is a lot more than being reactive in situations like this. So, uh, you know, get out ahead of this and see what you can do. Uh, been a pleasure having you on the program today, Colleen. Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time. Uh, for our listeners that uh, are as impressed with you as I am, uh, the podcast is called Your Amazing Life. You might want to check that out as well. Uh, Colleen Blake-Miller, as always, thank you so much. And uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I hope. Thank you, Bill. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to continue our conversation about what's happening with China and what's happening specifically with Canadians in China. Foreign Affairs Minister Mark Garneau says that Canada condemns in the strongest possible terms China's unjust conviction of Michael Spavor. We talked about that yesterday. And uh, as uh, Minister Garneau went on to say, there's a great deal of consternation about fairness and lack of transparency. Canada condemns in the strongest possible terms. Mr. Spavor's unjust conviction after more than two and a half years of arbitrary detention. My thoughts and the thoughts of all Canadians are with Mr. Spavor and his family during this extremely difficult time. This decision was made after a process that lacked both fairness and transparency, including a trial that did not satisfy the minimum standards required by international law. Uh, the outrage continues, and of course we're waiting for the verdict in, in the other case. Uh, we already know that earlier this week, Robert Schellenberg, a Canadian uh, who was already convicted of uh, drug smuggling, has been sentenced to death. Uh, you may remember his initial sentence was 15 years in jail, and uh, and after the Hmong arrest in Vancouver a couple of years ago, all of a sudden they pulled him out of a jail cell, retried him in one day, and said it's uh, it's the death penalty. And he lost his appeal earlier this week. We all know about that. But there are others as we've talked about, other Canadians who are incarcerated in Chinese prisons and institutions. Uh, and a number of people right now are saying, well, where's the outrage about them? Because it, it's been an ongoing problem. Joining us to talk about this, and of course, the overall and overarching uh, concern here about what we are going to do about Canada and Chinese relations and what can we do to get these people back to our country. Uh, so pleased to welcome to the program uh, Gordon Howden. Uh, he's the director of the China Institute and a professor of political science at the University of Alberta. Professor, as always, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for the time well, today. Thank you so much, Mark. 
Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, yesterday and 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 the uh, the the trials. I guess the real two trials. I guess earlier this week and the impact on this, uh, and and what this means now. Uh, you know, as, as I've heard different p- opinions on this, different perspectives on this. Uh, that these guys are playing hardball and and. There's no coincidence, of course, that that these two charges and these two uh, verdicts that were handed out earlier this week uh, coincide just around the same time that the uh, extradition trial for Hmong is going on in Vancouver right now. Uh, Yet the Chinese consistently say that there is no connection. Well, I don't buy, and I don't think any Canadians buy the the line that there's no connection, just as we don't buy the fact that when the two Michaels were arrested that there was no connection to sensitive Madame Hmong. Mm-hmm. The Canadians more or less randomly picked up, we believe, just a week after Madame Meng was detained. So what what is Chinese line and reality to me diverge sharply. Which is not unusual to to get that kind of messaging from the Chinese government, but uh, clearly there's a game going on here. Uh, the fact that uh, you know when Spivor was given his Kovacs was given a sentence. Uh, and they said, you know, there's going to be the, the, the sentence here it is, but at the same time is going to be deportation. But they're they're very unclear on when he's going to be deported. I'm assuming it's going to be at the end of the, the of the sentence. I took that inclusion of that word deportation, which they didn't have to do, and they don't always do, as a from the Chinese perspective, a slightly positive thing. In other words, signaling, as I read it, well, at the end of the day. We don't want to keep him. We want to send him back. And I think that also signals, should the Madame Meng case be resolved in a way acceptable to China, that they would be open to a deportation for for Mr. Spavor. I'm not. You know, I can't know that for certain. Chinese system so opaque, they don't signal often. But I read that as a, we don't want him forever. Solve our problem, which is Madame Meng, and we'll deport him. I, I read that into that as well. I was talking with Stephen Chase about the, from the Global Mail about this yesterday, and he wasn't quite as optimistic. I don't even know, maybe optimism is not the right phrase here. Uh, but it just seemed as if there was an out there, just in case. In other words, if you can give us what we want, uh, you know, we'll put this guy on a plane for you. But, you know, we want to see Madame Meng back in, in, in China before we do something like that, which is putting an awful lot of pressure on U.S. and Canadian diplomats. Or is it putting much pressure on U.S. diplomats? I know they're, they're talking the talk, Professor, about, you know, we support and we condemn what's going on and we support the actions here. But can they really be a player in getting this done? Well, I think, unfortunately, and this is where I, as a former diplomat myself, I'd like to keep a distinction between the things you'd like to have happen and the realistic prospect of them happening. Mm-hmm. We are we have few tools compared to China or the United States. So to me, the chances of doing this successfully without a U.S. involvement are, are pretty modest. I think the Americans do care about our two detainees and about the way the Chinese operate. I have no doubt about that. I don't think they lie awake at night in Washington or worry that we've got bad relations with China. Uh, that's something where their ally, where their economic partner, that doesn't bother them in particular. Um, but I'm, it's the timing of the question. I'm optimistic that the two Michaels will come home, but the question I can't answer is when. And there's a huge difference between a few weeks, a few months, or a few years. And and from the U.S. perspective, I, I mean, I'm trying to be pragmatic about this. For those that have even a cursory knowledge of what's going on in the states right now, uh, you know, there's voter restriction laws being passed in some states. Uh, the, the the pandemic is starting to rage again, especially in the southern states where there's a lot of unvaccinated people. Uh, 
the president and his administration have got a lot going on right now. So I, I, I share your feelings. I'm sure they're concerned about this. I'm sure they'd say we'd like to help. But on their list of priorities, it's I don't think it's in the top ten right now. There's other things that are far more pressing uh, for them to be concerned about now. I would agree. And even just in terms of U.S.-China relations, they have bigger fish to fry, which is not to diminish my concern and yours about our two Michaels. They've got Taiwan. They've got trade issues. They have Hong Kong, Xinjiang. The two Michaels are one, I'm sure, probably on a list of top 10 issues in U.S.-China relations, but it's not a headline issue in the United States in the same way. I mean, it was in the New York Times, etc., Washington Post, but it's not a front-of-mind thing for the bad administration, in my opinion. The other interesting piece about this, and I don't know if you saw the piece in the Toronto Star the other day from a Joanne Chu, who's with the Vancouver Bureau for the Star, uh, the headline is, is, I think, provocative. It says, if China hadn't targeted white Canadians, would Chinese-Canadian relations be business as usual? And, and her point being, uh, we are outraged, and justifiably so, about the two Michaels and about Schellenberg. Uh, they're white, uh, and, and you know there are many, many more people, we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, Canadians who are incarcerated right now uh, in Chinese prisons, and we seem to have forgotten about most of them, if we paid much attention to them at all. The one I, I can relate to most often is uh, Hassan Shalil, uh, the, the Uyghur Muslim, because his family actually settled in Burlington uh, years ago, and of course he was arrested, and he's serving, well, we don't even know what he's serving time for, but they said he's going to be in jail until 2036. Uh, he was never actually even charged with a crime, at least nothing that they made public, uh, so we don't really know what's going on. But uh, it's. I guess her point in the article, though, Professor, is uh, we should be paying attention to all of these. This is not an isolated problem. This has been going on for quite some time. It certainly has. I don't want to get into definitions of what is white and what is not, but it's a Jalil, a Uyghur. I was in the, the um, Harper government, and not as a political person, but as a diplomat during the Jalil case. And I, I can tell you there was white-hot anger in the PMO over the treatment of Jalil. And we were being told, that's our ambassador in Beijing, myself, I was the Director General for East Asia, get him out, give us a, a roadmap to get him out. That roadmap didn't exist, unfortunately. There was no way to lever him out, given that the Chinese viewed him as a separatist and a political active, activist, and they were not about to budge, and they're not about to budge now. On the question, though, of Chinese Canadians to detain, one of the big issues that we run into is that under, even under a consular agreement, if Chinese Canadians enter on a Chinese passport, a Chinese document, we do not have proper consular access. We attempt, but we're not given proper access. And the majority, there's 50,000 Canadians living on the mainland right now, another 300,000 in Hong Kong, and they are viewed by China as Chinese nationals, by us as ours. But getting at them, when they get into trouble, fairly unfairly, let's assume some are guilty and some aren't, either way, it's very tough to get access. And we have a lot of people on our missions in China trying to keep a track of them. So I, I'm not saying her comments are not without merit, but uh, there's a lot of folks who have run afoul of Chinese law. Are there other nationalities, Professor, that are in similar situations? I mean, we just talked about the Canadians, but uh, it's, there's a pattern here that's, that's very troubling, certainly. Uh, but what we want, and I know what the Canadian government's talked about over the last little while, and I, I Prime Minister Harper talked about this too, is more voices. It, you know, it can't just be Canada that's complaining about this, or it can't even just be Canada and the United States. Uh, there have to be other voices raised about the, the treatment of, of these people in, by the Chinese government. And uh, how do you, how do you coordinate something like that? 
It's very difficult. Uh, Candidates attempt to do it through the G7, yeah. uh, through informal groups at the United Nations of like-minded countries. My impression generally is that the biggest problems run into are, are individuals who are of Chinese origin. Chinese viewpoint or the worldview is that uh, once Chinese, always Chinese. Uh, so Australians or Americans, uh, New Zealanders, whomever of Chinese origin, are more likely to be run into more serious trouble and less likely simply to be expelled uh, from the country. So we're not alone, certainly, but and for those other countries, even Germany, for example, which has got strong human rights record, etc., their auto industry depends heavily on China. They sell more cars in China than in Germany, so they have other factors that come into play. Australia, China's their number one trading partner. So you, these other issues start to come into effect, and countries are willing to do a certain amount but not go to the wall necessarily in dealing with Beijing. That's that's the wild card of this whole discussion and this whole debate, isn't it, Professor? Is the the growth of the Chinese economy, and uh, you don't want to shut that door. I don't care if it's Canada, the United States, or whomever. I mean, we we have to be cognizant of, of what the government's doing with incarcerations and some of the other shady practices. But you you let's face it, the the, the first item just about any time there's any kind of a unilateral meeting uh, with officials from any other country in China, it's first ones about trade always, uh, because that's paramount among them. And you're right, you don't want to step on anybody's toes because uh, that could send the whole trade deal out, out, out the window as well. Well, in 2020, China was one of the very few countries, the only large economy to which our exports grew, despite all these other problems. And their economy is rebounded out of COVID at a pretty, pretty rapid pace. It's conceivable, and we're a trading nation, that the Chinese economy will overtake that in the United States in this decade. And I can imagine, I won't necessarily be around, Chinese economy, Chinese economy would be twice the size of the U.S. economy 20, 30 years from now. So that's a sobering thought if you're an export-oriented country like Canada. There's been discussion. I want to get your read on this. I'm glad you were able to join us today. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader, um, reiterated this yesterday after the verdict came down, uh, that uh, at least one thing we can do to show, to make a statement about this is, is to boycott the, the, the Beijing Olympics, which are coming up in the next little while. Uh, there's mixed reaction about that. Uh, the Prime Minister, uh, I paraphrase what he said, he says, that's not really our call. That's up to the Canadian Olympic Committee. Uh, it, but it would be a political move. It certainly would be his call. It would, you know, Jimmy Carter, of course, boycotted uh, the games uh, when the Russians invaded uh, Afghanistan so many years ago. I, I don't know that it actually did any good, but it's making a statement. Is that is that any good at all? Because I think you mentioned to us in a previous conversation, uh, the Chinese are very cognizant and aware of their international reputation, and, and they do get offended when people t- start to slag them. Yes, and that is the question, and that Olympic one is very much at the fore. I, I have some skepticism that this is going to work easily for us. My, my fear would be, and certainly ultimately is the government, the Prime Minister's calls whether or not we would go. Uh, there are levers that he can pull, push us one way or the other. If this were to be canned alone, uh, I fear that it would just make us look exposed and, and vulnerable. If you had an American-led initiative like you did in 1980 with a large group of countries, let's say Western Europe where a lot of the top Nordic powers are in terms of Winter Olympics, that would be another thing. But I don't see the Biden administration yet mobilizing for this. And without them, it won't work. What we could see is a diplomatic boycott. Just senior officials wouldn't go to Olympics. That's a much tamer version. My own view is that Canadian, senior Canadian officials should not be going to Beijing 
even if our athletes go, unless their job is to negotiate on behalf of the two Michael. So I, I, I'm just a skeptical. I'm skeptical that this is going to be something that will work easily. Without the support of the U.S. and others, it definitely won't work. And, and the concern here, as you talked about at the beginning of our conversation, are the tools that, that are at Canada's disposal at this stage. I know Mr. O'Toole again was saying, you know, the Prime Minister's got to do something. I, I, well, anytime there's a perilous situation, I think that's what our reaction is always going to be. Do something about it, for heaven's sake. Uh, there's not a whole lot he can do because we're always concerned about ramifications. Uh, it could be like the, the two Michaels, you know, who were incarcerated right after the Hmong thing. It could be economic sanctions, and, and they've done that to us before as well. So you, you just don't know where they're coming from. But the one thing that you can be sure of is that they would retaliate there aren't a lot of arrows left in our quiver the diplomatic relationship is low there's no visits back and forth we're in the sights of the of the chinese they continue to buy our goods which is a good thing if you're a western farmer or a lobster fisherman or a person out of, out of the maritimes but uh, what there is if there's a button to push to simply free the michaels that would be wonderful but we're now dealing with a superpower or almost superpower, they have more levers than we do by far. That's very hard for a Canadian to accept. One point four billion people with a massive economy and a big military gives them a whole range of options that we, we don't possess. It's just frustrating. Um, but I don't, I haven't heard in the media, uh, not in government, suggestions that will yield the two Michaels in the, in the near framework except releasing Meng Wanzhou, which then makes a bit of a mockery about our assertions that we're not going to interfere with the court process in any fashion. Exactly. Uh, Professor, great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. That's uh, Professor Gordon Howden at uh, the University of Alberta. As uh, Professor mentioned to us, a very, very uh, intricate and uh, very long background in, in the diplomatic corps, too. So he's got an awful lot of knowledge about what's going on with Canada and Chinese relations. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.